AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for March 24th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today by Dan Holden from Arbor Networks. You're the uh, Director of Security Research, Dan, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, Director of uh, ACERT, which is our security research organization at Arbor Networks. Uh, we do uh, all of the botnet tracking, campaign tracking for DDoS, uh, uh, financial fraud, geopolitical mm -hmm. campaigns, those sorts of things, uh, retail point of sale. Um, so generally a campaign type of focus that kind of right. comes from our DDoS roots, uh, but uh, provide all the security content for the Arbor products and that sort of stuff. Very cool. You know, we do some of the same kinds of things here. Yeah. It will, it, like in the internet weather, for example, it, we talk a lot about how DDoS attacks have become commercialized and how prolific yeah. they've become. I don't, what, what are your thoughts? Is it is are we just going to have to live with this for a long time? Or yeah, it, it is interesting because it has changed a lot. I, I would say you know whether you're talking DDoS specifically or threat landscape, uh, we tend to have these shifts every five or six years. And I would mm -hmm. say certainly modern DDoS kind of uh, was ushered in in 2010. Uh, anonymous and Operation Payback had a mm -hmm. lot to do with I think kind of the. The, the newest generation of DDoS in terms of how you go about doing it, what it's mm -hmm. used for, maybe right. most importantly, it's so tied to geopolitics in, in many regards, and mm -hmm. uh, whether that's local or worldwide. Um, so, right. you know, it, it is kind of, so many of the DDoS attacks are now almost background noise, uh, you know, similar to what we were used to with the, the worms back in the you know, mid-2000s. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. You know, whether you're talking about uh, attacks on gaming, you know, just user on user, you know, it, it kind of harkens back to all of us on IRC back in the 90s <laughs> and, and ping-f, <laughs> you know, so, sure. same thing, except that now it's, you know, Call of Duty. <laughs> right, right. Um, right. And then, of course, nation on nation and and uh, some of the largest attacks and then application based and yeah it's it's all over the place and it is typical as of, of the threat landscape I think where you see after a while when defenders get better you know then you start to see new things different things mm -hmm. you know and obviously what grabs the headlines are the largest attacks but you know those aren't necessarily the scariest attacks yeah. um, there's a lot of other innovations that happen in DDoS just like any other part of the threat landscape yeah you're absolutely right I couldn't agree with you more well Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming here. Looking we're, forward we're to glad it. to have you. Looking forward to some more discussion. Yeah. Uh, we have Matt Kaiser here. Welcome, Matt. How's it going? Regular day for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a special appearance with uh, Jim Clausing here. Normally, when I look at you, Jim, I see a camera lens. Yeah. And so today we get to see you in person. And yeah, glad it's to nice. have you with us today. It's nice to be on the couch and not right. <laughs> remote. <laughs> I'm Brian Rexrode, and let's get right into it. Here, first, Jim, we'll go to you. And uh, last week, we talked a, lot, a little bit about the anticipation of an open SSL patch coming about. Right. We we heard uh, that the that open SSL was going to release a patch, and they did release the patch on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, fortunately, not to be as significant as. We thought it might, we feared it might possibly be last week. The high severity vulnerability was a 
denial of service in OpenSSL 1.0.2, which is not the most widely installed version at mm -hmm. this point. It's not in um, any of the mainstream Linux distributions yet. Uh, the next releases of Ubuntu and, and Red Hat and Fedora and all of those probably will have it, but mm -hmm. right now they're still on 1.0.1 or 1.0 or one of the 0.9, so there's mm -hmm. still a lot of those out there. So that was the the one high severity, and then the other one was the freak stuff that actually had been at least partially patched earlier. So fortunately, it turned out not to be uh, necessarily as significant as we right. thought it might be from their you know, their early announcement, all they said was high severity and gave yeah. no hints. Right. So. so I guess in summary, it, it, I mean, it is high severity. It's just that low distribution or right, relatively right. low distribution the, yeah, the, for the high. The, the denial of service vulnerability in 1.0.2 is significant if you've got 1.0.2, but mm -hmm. that's not as widely deployed yet, so it's not not as much of a worry as it would otherwise be. Well, that's a relief. Yep. <laughs> you know, it, uh, although you know, perhaps this is a actually a product of it's nice to see that it's the patches or the vulnerabilities are being discovered before it goes into a wide distribution rather than afterward. I think that's a significant development. Yeah, and perhaps this, a part of it. Yeah, the, fortunately, this one only existed in the 1.0.2 branch and didn't exist in the earlier ones. Mm -hmm. We've had you know some vulnerabilities in the last year where we were talking about vulnerabilities that have existed for 20, 20 years, mm -hmm. so fortunately this wasn't one of those. <laughs> All right, so Dan, let's go to you. You know, uh, we spent a lot of, uh, we, we spent a little bit of time discussing, you know, threat intelligence and the value propositions associated with that. I want to give you a chance here to, to share some of your thoughts and let's... Uh, well, this is something that, that both Arbor and probably AT&T get asked about all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, visibility into very large networks, visibility into lots of malware, lots of botnets, mm -hmm. you know, um, monitoring overall internet health, right? So we have lots of data and of course everybody, once you have data, everybody wants their hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've, I've noticed in the industry in general is, of course, making up for so many of the shortcomings of the technology that's been around for some time, uh, you know, the, the, you follow best practices and defense in depth and everybody ends up looking alike. Mm -hmm. um, and now the industry seems to be pointing them in the direction of, okay, now that you've bought all that stuff from us, um, now we have this new thing called threat intelligence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, in most cases, that's a, a another big blacklist. Yeah. Right? So, you know, yeah. just like all of your signatures and all the other things, now we have IPs and domains and URLs and uh, even SSL certs, and you just can keep going, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so now it's okay, well, now you need to shove all this stuff into a SIM or a big Hadoop cluster, and you need to learn to do your own big data storage and access and and the question is for what to what end right um, you can say oh yeah we're doing threat intelligence but has it made you mo any more intelligent <laughs> um, and that's that's the question in in many respects it seems as though yes you're making um, you've got tons of intelligence wrapped up in your data storage mm -hmm. uh, you've got machines that are smarter but the issue is I think the real mission what we'd like to accomplish I think everyone is how do I tie my internal internet to the external internet to have context as to how they're interacting and where the risk mm -hmm. and danger is? And so right now that is, okay, shove all of our internal events in one place and then shove all the external stuff into the same place mm -hmm. and see if we can corroborate any better than we could before. Right, right. The problem is the internet is very large and, you know, whatever percentage of it is bad and whatever that of 
whatever percentage you're interacting with. Mm -hmm. And so if you just have tons and tons of data and none of it actually has any interaction with your network, then you wasted a bunch of time and storage on, absolutely on something that has nothing to do with, with your network or your yeah, environment. You're right. Well, I think it even goes beyond that. You know, there's this big promise of threat intelligence sharing. Yeah. And it's not a one way, you know, I share with you and you share with me and we're all done. Yeah. Uh, we all have different perspectives. And so this notion of, you know, all these different groups sharing and, well, I'm going to share this stuff with you, but you can't share it with that guy. And so we end up with this, all of these, uh, you know, this tangled web. Yeah. Forgive the pun, yeah. <laughs> you know, analogy, but it, it, all, it, it ultimately does become a tangled web. So that becomes, a, and as it is now, you've been referring to data. It's yeah. not even data today. It's emails. It's hearsay. It's, you know, some little, you know, pamphlet or something, and you have to extract the pieces of it and try to develop some well, context around it. It's, it's interesting. It's I think if you ask us all historically what has worked, and, and this is true, I think, of whether you're talking in the ISP world or whether you're talking security industry, uh, and the ISP world, I think, is a great example of this, right? So much of it is, is based on handshake agreements mm -hmm. and the fact that the same people have been monitoring and running and helping the internet be what it is for years and years. Yeah. And you know everyone and exchange of information is easy because mm -hmm. of that. It's yes. actually, you know, if, if the average person at home knew how many people are really involved in running the internet, it's, it's much smaller than they probably think, <laughs> right? <is> true. Um, <laughs> but that works. It's, it's definitely Trust true. groups actually work really well. Yeah, they do. Um, you know, if you looked at what Microsoft did with the Conficker Working Group, mm -hmm. one of the few examples of the security industry getting something right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when again, you know, uh, internet community sharing things handshake agreements, trust groups work. Now you start to look at things like what Obama recently announced with, oh, you guys should all share more, or you look at um, formats like sticks and taxi, and it's, mm -hmm. okay, we want to push everyone to do it, and then everyone's stuck saying, okay, well, we can only share this, or we can only share that. And what is still working in terms of real, the meat of, of exchange is still occurring, I think, with the trust groups. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, yeah, what is the value when you are forcing the kids on the playground to play to, with each other, so to speak? All right. Um, <laughs> that value, I think, will have to be measured yeah. and really, you know, we've got to see whether that actually works and at what level that works. Because what we do know works, I think, is the trust groups. Yeah. Um, right, the ISACs and the, that sort of thing. and and. You know, there's a reason why things are TLP, you know, based mm -hmm. um, because you need to be able to trust when you provide information mm -hmm. that it's not going to the wrong place, that it's going to the right place, and it will be used in the right way. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, from an Arbor standpoint, maybe from an AT&T standpoint, is oftentimes so much of your challenge. I would love to give you the information. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to trust that it won't be used for, you know, right. bad purposes. Yeah. For, which, for, which side of the force are you on? Right. <laughs> <laughs> True. And for anybody that's not already familiar, TLP that, uh, that Dan referred to here, that's traffic light protocol, which is a relatively simple and very effective way to basically determine to what extent you can share information. So basically, I think white means you can share it. Green, you, green, yellow, red, internet, I think, yeah. And then green basically allows you to share it relatively broadly, but not post it on the internet. Yeah, And there then uh, yellow says you can share it within your organization and perhaps to others if you get permission to do that from the originator. And then red meaning you can't really share it, and so hopefully you can use it. You're, you're the direct participant in yeah. a group. And so it's, uh, I think this came out of FIRST originally. The, I believe so, yeah. 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 And uh, it's been adopted by a, lot, a number of other groups. Really, I think, a, a well-crafted uh, idea, although most systems don't think that way. You know, when we think back in the you know, security controls, 
uh, we tend to think in terms of uh, mandatory access controls and discretionary access controls. Right. We don't have a traffic light protocol control built into any systems today. So I think that's part of uh, what's happening is, you know, I know, Matt's looking at me here because I know he's been working on this for our, yeah. <laughs> for our activities and, you know, is pulling his hair out from time to time trying to figure out how we uh, implement this in a system. It's, it's a little more difficult in a system because you still have to track uh, the attribution or the ownership of the information and determine to what scope I mean, you can share. From my perspective, ThreadEntil, you know, it has its ups and its downs. I've seen great data. I've seen really, really bad data as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think we're still in our infancy of being able to share not only the indicators, but right. find a way to say these indicators are fresh, not fresh, reliable, not reliable, mm -hmm. and then make informed decisions based on that and not just like a score from one to ten of whether or not I worry about this or well, not. Well, you just nailed it. But the problem with so much of the threat intel historically has been a total lack of metadata. Mm -hmm. You told me that's bad. Why is it bad? Mm -hmm. yeah. Why is it bad? <coughs> yeah. And then uh, and if even it's bad for you, does that necessarily it mean me? it's bad for is me? It's a threat to my yeah. you know, vertical or... or yeah. and, and so funny enough, we can trust each other more than the machines. <laughs> Which is <laughs> it's still a ways to it's still a ways it's to a go bit with of the a, Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we're trying to prevent you know uh, the, the Terminator prevent scenarios, the rise right? Of the yeah. Machines, yeah. I'm, I'm more worried about preventing us using it in some sort of automated improper fashion. Th that's where yeah. someone has, has seen something in their honeypot, it gets fed mm -hmm. into my IDS or into my firewalls, right. and all of a sudden I'm blocking a significant number of customers. Well, and I like that you just Dossing brought up honeypots too, because this is the the, the fallacy of the security industry. What happened, I think, is everybody discovered, oh, putting together honeypots is pretty easy. Mm -hmm. um, deploying them out, pretty easy. Oh, look at all of the information we get. And let's shove that into a new service called Threat Intel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you don't it's, mind. It's not that hard. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to make a qualification here. It's been a long time motto of mine. Too much information, not enough, or excuse me, too much data, not, not enough information. information. You can definitely collect data with honeypots. That's right. Information is another matter. You really have to put it in the context and consider, but, you know, is this a false positive? And is that's it? another yeah. promise of, of Threat Intel that I'm still kind of wavering about is, yeah. At some point, you know, someone said, we have all this information, we should be able to throw it into a big data you know, system and get really good information out of it. That we can mm -hmm. say, okay, we've seen this over the last five years, now we know this ASN is the trouble. It's not just this IP and that IP over here and this IP, or it's this whoage regist registrant we need to nail down or something yeah. like that. And, and I think that, that becomes the fundamental issue, right? Regardless whether you're a vendor, whether you're an enterprise or ISP or whatever, Regardless of whether you're talking, you know, uh, storing it in a, a SIM or a Hadoop cluster or whatever level of corroboration, or whether the next step is machine learning, mm -hmm. it's still fundamentally garbage in, garbage out. And if you are building something to make decisions based on poor or questionable or mediocre data, you're still going to get, you know, mediocre <laughs> decisions being made. And, and I, that, I think, is a question you have to be asking yourself, judging yourself, assessing yourself. The, I just want to pull in a bunch of data from different sources and see if things improve. Mm -hmm. uh, the Vegas odds, I don't know, are going to be with that, that line of thinking. Yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. But, okay, so uh, if we, I think the undertone of this is that there's still a lot of maturity that's needed in the threat intelligence space, yeah. that the notion is still has some promise, but it's an experiment at this stage. And I, I guess I'd a, say a buzzword at this stage. It's right? definitely a buzzword. Right. Buzzword. Yeah. And you know, I, I have to say, I think we've gotten some good value from threat intelligence, but yeah. as it is today, it's a very labor-intensive activity. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, the, 
the promise of automation around that. We wouldn't be investing in it if it weren't if we didn't see some promise in it. Yeah. I, I know Matt spends a lot of time, you know, trying to get his arms around some of the challenges here. But I think there's uh, there's opportunity here, and yeah. it's a matter of really sort of optimizing, you know, getting the value from it and not expecting it to be that it's not going to be a panacea. It helps. Yeah. Well, and again, you. <clears throat> it's one of those situations where it is a buzzword, and, and mm -hmm. of course, uh, these industries are famous for those. Um, you know, and, and you see those every couple of years, and everybody jumps on the bandwagon. The, the point of the bandwagon is, yeah, sure, the fundamental ideas are, are good, mm -hmm. um, right? Just like cloud was good, and, and you know, virtualization was good, and mobile's good, right? Um, those terms uh, come, and we all jump on them. But the point is, where where are you wanting to end up? And is your strategy of taking in a ton of data uh, going to get you there. And uh, so many times it's, well, everybody else is doing it, so let's go try it and see if it works for right. us. Uh, it should probably be a little bit more deliberate than I think historically, um, you know, some of these buzzwords and bandwagons have been. Mm -hmm. This is true. Yeah, because cloud and mobile, those are no-brainer. Virtualization, <laughs> no-brainer, right? Figure well, and in fact, I think uh, it's your point, um, and, and this is actually one of the things that uh, has been a bit of a concern of ours is that there's been so much emphasis around threat intelligence sharing that it seems to have, have uh, overtaken the notion of actually improving inherent security solutions <laughs> and, and actually architecting so that we have better security. Thank and you for vocalizing exactly <laughs> what I've been trying to say. You just yeah, nailed it. Absolutely true. Absolutely. So uh, I'm glad we agree. Yeah. <laughs> Although it, it's no good for the debate portion of this. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean that that's a perfect wrap up of exactly yeah. what I was I was trying to get to. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a hey I love fashion, but yeah. you know make sure that the, it's more than a trend, and mm -hmm. uh, you're going to get something out of it. Yeah, I, they they're absolutely complementary. The the I think one of our our clear observations is the more and more. Um, there, there have been, I'm not going to say less, but fewer of the real concerns are really kind of buried down at the network level. That more and more what we're seeing are attacks against the applications themselves. And oh, the policy yeah. is intended to allow access to the applications. And so, and, and it may, it, you know, the analogy I tend to think of or I tend to use is uh, just password guessing. Is that you know when we uh, when we consider how an application is intended to be used, just an authentication interface, we expect a username to be put in, a password to be put in, and mm -hmm. if they did it right, they get access to the application. If they don't do it right, they get basically rejected. And if they're trying to guess, they get kicked out after a few guesses. But now the trend is okay. Well, instead of doing it just guessing usernames and passwords, how about we just go across all the usernames and guess a handful of passwords? It's a it's a new paradigm that we hadn't thought of or, previously. Or interact with the application that doesn't require authentication, uh, right? right? And mean, so interact in it yeah. in a way that you hadn't anticipated the application. You're, to be used you're for a site that hosts large PDFs for loan documents or insurance or mm -hmm. whatever. Well, they're you know multi-meg. What happens if I download a bunch of them? And there's no authentication stopping me from doing that. What if I download a bunch of them from a lot of different zombies on the internet? Right, yeah. <laughs> what happens to your application then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, it had nothing to do with all the other aspects of your website, like the pipe that's coming in or your edge devices right. protecting and connecting it. And I think that's kind of the scenario, again, going back to the, the way we thought about things in the 90s, right? You'd walk through your DMZ and you'd say, oh, that's the web server over there, and it had a little WWW sticker on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, you'd point to it and say, oh, that's the web server. And, and now it's okay. 
it's the pipe coming in from your ISP or likely multiple ISPs, mm -hmm. all your edge devices, mm -hmm. um, the server or servers or cloud environment that it's hosted in, and then the application and maybe even back-end systems, right? So from an attacker standpoint, I've got like eight different things to go after. Mm -hmm. It's not just the box in the corner that used to be. Right, right. And so you've got to be thinking that the attack surface is, is larger than you probably historically would have felt it. Yeah. And just going back to DDoS, for instance, right? most people look at that as a pure networking problem. And I'll tell you from my personal standpoint, and I think many others out there, the networking aspect of DDoS is not what really scares us. It's the application level aspect. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is right. the one of the things that shows you is that the attacker really cares. Mm -hmm. And DDoS is generally made up of attackers that don't care that much. Um, but when you're going after the application, it really shows some dedication that they want right. you and and they have to know they have to know something about that that's application right. that's in right. order to do it. And, and so, so that tells you something right. about the attacker versus oh somebody launched a sin flood, mm -hmm. right? Because the barrier to entry for a sin flood is quite low. Mm -hmm. Barrier to entry to attack my application a lot higher. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, so. Just to uh, sort of close out on this threat and tell aspect of it, I think where at least where I've seen very good values. First, I think it, what you were just alluding to is that contextual aspect. Yep. That is to have some notion of, uh, to some extent, at least some loose attribution to be able to say, is this a targeted activity that, uh, that I really need to be paying attention to, or is it sort of just the I don't care too much kind of uh, activity that's... I, I think you've got to ask yourself, who is going to be my audience? Right, And you really have two different audiences here. You want to be able to enable your incident responders as well as, 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 as much as you can. Mm -hmm. How can I make, not just make everybody smarter. What's the reason to make people smarter? And it's, I think it's to make people more efficient. Mm -hmm. right? I only have so much staff with so much skill set, with this much turnover, right? and I have these many things coming in. And again, the barrier to entry for the attacker right, is, I mean, there's way more attackers than I have incident responders. So how do I make them as good as possible, right? That would be the point of threat intelligence. Yeah. And then at the management layer, you know, how do I not get my CISO, you know, fired, uh, which happens <laughs> all the time, right? Um, or how am I, as the CISO, yeah. not going to get fired? Um, and I think that's why you see, look at how many companies that are now uh, putting in place uh, CROs, chief risk officers. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be able to assess risk at spread both. Spread it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, not only spread it out, um, but I think you've got to be able to understand the risk at the lowest level and at the highest level, mm -hmm. right? The fact that we partnered with or are sponsoring a sporting event, did that put us in any risk, right? Because your incident responders are not thinking about that. Mm -hmm. But they might be responding to the malware or the DDoS event that mm -hmm. triggered because of something maybe an executive said or something you sponsored or some mm -hmm. partnership you did or mm -hmm. some decision as a company you made. Right, right. right. And those worlds right now, probably not all that connected. And threat intelligence, whether that's human or machine, that it should be, I think, affecting those, those, those areas of risk assessment. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. You know, the, uh, I think generally the legal teams have focused on considering risk mm -hmm. from a legal point of view. That's a great point, yeah. But, we haven't really deliberately put somebody in the position to say, looking at it from an illegal point of view. That is, to what extent? Uh, or just who, who, who's, right? who's your, as I like to say, who's your one neck to, to choke in yeah. terms of company risk, right? Yeah. And I think that's why this CRR role is becoming more popular because mm -hmm. who is connecting the dots? And at the end of the day, right, the, only the CEO is, is, is the person connecting those dots because all those things end up eventually mm -hmm. rolling to you. 
Whereas, you know, yeah, you're right. You've got legal, you've got, you know, infosec, IT, you've got employee, HR. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of risk that has to be assessed and managed mm -hmm. every single day in a company. Yeah. Um, and that might be why that role has kind of come around and become more popular is because people have realized in, in the modern day, managing that risk is actually one of the primary functions of a company of any magnitude or size at this, mm -hmm. this point. Very interesting. Yeah. We talked a little bit about security architecture and we just finished discussing risk. <laughs> so what is the risk of a bad security architecture? <laughs> um, it depends on, on who's, who's trying to get at you at this point. But so yeah, this, this is our, our, our scary story of the week. And I think we've had a few really interesting, deep technical, like crazy hacker stories the last few weeks and it, it mm -hmm. just keeps on rolling. So this one came out of Cansac West this past weekend. Uh, Corey Kallenberg and Zeno Kova of Legbacore, which, small side note, I think is just the best name for a small security firm. <laughs> I go into it, but we don't have the time. Um, they, it, is, it is interesting where the, some of these names come from. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just it, check out their little, do the research. It is, it's pretty cool. And if you're a William Gibson fan, you might get a chuckle out of it, too. Uh, okay. Um, but they, they presented on this, this malware they've written. Um, it's, it's really the attack is the cool thing, but they package it as this malware called Light Eater. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that they were able to reach into functionality offered by Intel processors, this uh, system management mode, mm -hmm. which is supposed to only really be used by BIOS and firmware up. Mm -hmm. um, and what it turns out you can do is, using certain parts of memory that the, the SMM actually reaches out back into regular space for, at particular um, pointer tables, mm -hmm. if you can control those, and this, this, this uh, SMM should not be really reaching out into these areas, if you can control those pointers, you can force code to be run in SMM, mm. which means you're running on what's basically God mode on the machine, way below the OS, um, space that should never be ever be tampered with. And right. turns out that they can actually not only read and write memory, anywhere within the OS, and then since you're not worrying about like OS memory protections, like you get everything. Mm -hmm. And you can actually modify the BIOS at that point, patch it so you get persistence inside of it. So basically what they've done is they've found ways in popular UEFI, UFEI, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. BIOSes that you can basically gain God mode. Mm -hmm. Two of the things that they found out, the, the, the big points they wanted to make out of this research is that one, nobody ever updates their, their BIOS firmware. I mean, not it's, it's, not, it's yeah. not very often. Uh, maybe if you're doing it as, as a corporation, maybe you've got a plan for this. Mm -hmm. Most home users have never done it and probably never right. will. Mm -hmm. uh, and two, a lot of code gets reused between different BIOS vendors. And it is, it is a little bit scary. They have a list um, of the different vendors that were affected in their presentation. Mm -hmm. And they've all got the same vulnerabilities. Might as well be all of them. It yeah. may as well yeah, be all of right. them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I like that they pointed out was, you know, say you are the ultra paranoid that is is redoing, re-imaging your machine every month or however often you do that. You know, let's say you travel somewhere in the world and you feel, oh, you know, I should probably start over again. Um, you know, this is, uh, as we were talking about earlier, this is the difference between temporarily, temporarily owning someone and permanently owning someone. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the perma-ownage of this uh, vuln, I think, is what the fascinating aspect of it is. Yeah, Especially you. from a... A, a cyber espionage type of standpoint. Um, I mean, that's just that's a that's almost a James Bond-esque vulnerability. Oh yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> the whole point of this mode is that the OS has no visibility into it. There's no way you can make. You're never supposed to be able to make changes coming down from the OS into this mode. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a perfect protection if you're now able to hide within which, it. Which is great because how many arguments have we had 
throughout our, our years and, and careers, right? Uh, debating which web browser is the best or which OS is the best. Mm -hmm. And none of us has ever debated which BIOS. No, no one has ever thought of that. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, and, sure. yeah well, and you know, the, the OS debate is irrelevant here. They, that's right. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if you're running Linux or Windows or you know, Mac OS, you're still owned. It's, it's, it's almost lowest common denominator of vulnerability, which yep. is, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was thinking if you had told us 20 years ago that we were still going to be having vulnerabilities in Bash, in DNS, and ah. BIOS. I don't know if we would have been like, yeah, yeah, totally, because that's the way it is now. Or like, wow, we, we hadn't moved past we, that. Yeah, we haven't gotten now. over that yet. <laughs> but that, that's what I like about this sort of vulnerability, is it is a total reminder that it's not just the web apps, you know, the Joomla's, Drupal's, WordPress's that you have to worry about. It is the fundamental stuff that we've been using forever mm -hmm. that is still still a part of the attack surface today. And that's, yeah. if nothing else, it's a good reminder that you can't take anything for granted. Right. Yeah. I'm going to digress for a moment. I think we're due for an SMTP vulnerability, right? <laughs> the old email mail. list? Yeah. <laughs> Going way back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so, you know, to what extent are we, should we be expecting the BIOS to be, you know, basically self-protected? I mean, this is bits and bytes here. Well, or, is it really the operating system that should be protecting us from this, or you know, basically a trusted core of the operating system? I, I'm pretty old school about stuff like this. Well, you know, in most situations where someone starts talking about biosecurity, you start thinking about signing and you know, mm -hmm. restricting flashing of the new BIOS, mm -hmm. and most of them are signed. This actually mm -hmm. bypasses, bypasses that signing sign. because I think the check is usually done at startup, and it mm -hmm. says, "Is the complete BIOS hash correct?" Mm -hmm. Okay, good. You know, is it signed? Good. And then it doesn't get doesn't get looked at again until you reboot the machine. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're doing this while the machine is running, you can mess around all you want. Mm -hmm. One thing I did want to make a point about is that a lot of the reporting around this has been focused on tails for some reason, and it's it's partially understandable because it's in the demo they gave, and they they show that you can attack tails, mm -hmm. which is known to be one of those very paranoid operating systems. The one that Edward Snowden used. Oh my mm -hmm. God, Edward Snowden's favorite OS is now totally pwned. Mm -hmm. um, but they also attacked Windows 10. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, you, and you can do it to any operating system. Yeah, I think to to, to Jim's point, it's yep. just about any operating system. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it is very difficult to have those kind of universal vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just so rare. I mean, that's exactly why attackers moved away from going after the operating systems and went after the web browsers, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. then I don't have to worry about your OS as much. Or right. Java, or any of the plugins in the that's browsers. That's right, yeah. right. And right. This, this just goes all the way back to the, the lowest level again. I mean, it's funny, how many years did we all sit there paranoid waiting for the hypervisor to get popped and give the keys to the kingdom? Mm -hmm. Nobody was thinking about the BIOS giving the keys to the kingdom. You know, that's a that's a good point when yeah. you were talking about the the universality of the bug, and we see the exploit kits of the day using things like Java and Flash because they know it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. That's that huge attack surface that everybody's has to worry about. Right. right. And now we've got this weird situation where we've got a bug that's totally like it takes incredible technical knowledge to pull this off, but at the same time, it's got that huge widespread vulnerability mm -hmm. across many many platforms. I mean, most people are going to have to if not worry about it, their platform is affected by the bug. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure where to classify this one. I think it's, it's somewhere in a weird nebulous place where 
they're going some people who are doing the, the mass exploitation of machines for botnets mm -hmm. for you know for profit yeah. are going to have an interest in this mm -hmm. at the same time you've got people at the other end know this is this is one of those scary bugs that we can use for years and years mm -hmm. right yeah yeah, yeah. I, I you know I'll go out on a limb and then everybody who can make fun of me later but <laughs> I, I would be surprised if it's one of those kind of typical cyber crime type of vulns that gets used just mm -hmm. because yeah. I would think so. It's it's probably not necessary, right? I mean, you know, you can still pick on all the the higher level up the stack. You there know, are plenty of Internet of Things out there that yeah. aren't so yeah. secure. Oh. Yeah, exactly. What I call the Internet of Insecure Things. It's a special class of things that well, weren't designed to really be what put we, on the What we always say is Arb at Arbor is Internet of Things can easily turn into botnet of things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this I would be scared at more of the. Know, someone's really got to care, mm -hmm. cyber espionage, mm. nation state, yeah. or you know, someone really wants to get at you. Yeah. Well, I would put okay. it this way. I, I think to a large extent the, the, the cyber crime uh, following or groups are a little reserved about what things they do. That is, I think that when you, complete, when you get to the point where you're destroying equipment in effect, yeah. it's well, going to... It's, it has a different effect. It has, it, and what it's going to do is paint a target on them. It's going to create a much oh. stronger interest in finding out who they are and doing something about it. Yeah. I, and I think there's a, I think there's a tendency to be somewhat reserved. Yeah, that's, there are all kinds of really bad things that could have been done that right. have not happened. Partly, and I think that's one of the, the deterrents. You, you jump point. over the line into cyber terrorism, you know, right. it, however you want to define these things. But I, I, the reason why I said that is because most of the time, what you have is common toolkits mm -hmm. being used by you know cyber criminals, right? And so, the, the easiest thing to do, right, in terms of your business model, is take the, the latest, greatest vulnerabilities, shove mm -hmm. them into your existing toolkits, right, yeah. and you just continue on with your business. Something like this only becomes attractive if it is really good, if it mm -hmm. helps me grow something, you know, wildly. And the attractive part here is the persistence, mm -hmm. right? I don't care how much AV you run or how often you clean the system. Mm -hmm. It could be attractive from that standpoint, but the question will be, what is the barrier to entry? Right. And if the barrier to entry technically or, or in terms of their time is too high, then there's a lot of other things to be spending their time on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. But, but you're right. That is the difference between all of the various cyber whatevers is, mm -hmm. yeah, most of the time you're not seeing something destroy a machine, like like what yeah. we saw with, you know, the, the Stuxnets or what we saw in South Korea or whatever the case might be. Um, the moment you really destroy something, uh, you, you start to cross lines mm -hmm. that are, are past what generally happens every day on the Internet. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, just a couple of uh, sort of somewhat related examples. If you take a look at Conficker, yeah, it drew I think more attention than it was ever intended to. And as soon as it drew attention, the the creators kind of evaporated. That it's, botnet it's, it's really never got used for much of anything. And I think it was because it was so wildly successful. Yeah, that they uh, that they were they lost interest in it. They didn't want to draw attention to themselves. No, you're right. Another another example was the uh, actually the not so uh, uh, more recent uh, zero access botnet takedown, where the fact that there was a lot of attention around it wasn't necessarily that big or prominent of botnet just doing click fraud in the background kind of thing. But when there was an activity to actually do a takedown. Mm -hmm. They didn't try to fight it. They said, you know, we've, we'll go build a new one somewhere else. And that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so those kinds of uh, behaviors are, are basically suggestive that, you know, if you if you draw too much attention, it's uh, it's really counterproductive. It is interesting that the, you mentioned the Conficker one. I hadn't thought about that because that was zero day, mm -hmm. which is 
very rarely used in a cyber criminal type of fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, a resurgence of zero day in a sense. That was the, uh, it was yeah, the same was vulnerability, the blaster worm. Uh, well, it's just, I mean. <laughs> Re reintroduced, right, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, if they went to the trouble to use zero day or, or you know, something that was fairly new, um, what is the intent or the purpose of the botnet and, and the attackers? Mm -hmm. As opposed to typical cyber criminal activity where it's, um, let's wait until it comes out in Metasploit, copy and paste, yeah. and and uh, make the make the money, right? right? Which is a whole lot easier, yeah. And yeah. and scales quite nicely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that kind of takes us to our next topic here, and and I think it kind of meshes in with some of the other things we've talked about. Is you know when is attribution helpful? When does it matter? What are your thoughts? Uh, I I am not a fan of attribution. Um, and, and this happens all the time. Now, just to clarify, so there's attribution of attribution of to the attackers. There's right. also attribution in the context of threat intelligence sharing. That is, who provided the information. I, I assume you're talking about attacker. attacker yeah, most right. most of the time you're talking about attacker. Now, I from a personal interest standpoint, and the fact that I love spy movies. I mean, I love <laughs> attribution. Um, so I love reading about attribution. Mm -hmm. I love discussing attribution. Um, you know, that part of it's great. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would also say that, uh, again, you know, going back to Vegas odds, I think most of the time your gut feeling on the attribution is probably right. Mm -hmm. But I think, of course, what most people always point out is that it's so difficult to prove attribution. It is very true. Mm -hmm. And what you really have to, ask, have to ask yourself, and this happens all the time in the DDoS world, um, right? Uh, executives always want to know who was attacking us, mm -hmm. um, right? What, what did we do, or what you know? And it just especially in the case of DDoS, you should be asking yourself that in terms of risk. Did we do anything? And you mm -hmm. can learn lessons from that. Right. Uh, right. Did we tick off anonymous? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that sort of scenario. And we see it all the time in both locally, globally. Um, but what is, what is that going to change? Right. right. You still have to mm -hmm. defend against the attack. Now, if it's going to change the way you do business or the way you assess risk or the way you interact, you know, great. Then, mm -hmm. then that's fine. Um, but if you're just wanting to know because you just want to know, I mean, then again, it, it's it's personal and it's fun. But I mean, the the reason why I say all this is because the amount of time, essentially the money that it takes to do proper attribution or mm -hmm. any attribution, is intense. It is. And so, is it great when vendors do it for you? Sure. And now, if if I'm a CISO of an enterprise, do I need think I need to be go wasting my time on attribution? Not really, because yeah. I have to scale to a zillion attackers, mm -hmm. right? I have to scale to nation state and um, cyber criminals and internal and whatever. Mm -hmm. And if I'm wasting my time on one attribution over here, I'm not spending all the time trying to scale, you know, to a real time attacker base that is global and massive. So mm -hmm. that that's why I say I don't particularly like it, right? So I like it and dislike it. Right. And it all depends exactly. on context. Yeah. Do I think enterprises should be doing attribution? Probably not, because I think it's probably a waste of resources. Um, so unless you just have lots of budget mm -hmm. <laughs> to so spend I, on such things. Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. The, uh, just to sort of the, take it a couple little uh, different directions here. So in, in one sense, it's not necessarily knowing who specifically attacked you that is perhaps valuable but understanding what the motivation was. It, it could be wh why, right? Yeah, right. I mean, why? so if you look at, uh, you know, sporting events all over the world, right? Um, the Olympics or World Cup or the F1 race in Bahrain, 
right? If anyone disagrees with anything have, you know, that's occurring anywhere in the world, you can mm -hmm. probably see some sort of reflection on the internet, mm -hmm. right? Especially it has to do with politics and that sort of scenario, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's probably not gonna be a big you know, surprise when there's a DDoS attack or someone's you know, uh, dumping docs on all of our employees because, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, understanding the risk, that's what's important. Mm -hmm. um, Sure. If it, yeah, if it if it has to do with decision making and understanding why, then you know next time you go say something in the press or you go participate in something or say something, whatever, mm -hmm. um, it could influence that. Mm -hmm. But knowing that someone on the other side of the world and what their name and address is, I mean, what are you going to do? Call right. Interpol? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I was going to say. Attribution has value if you're willing to prosecute or take some other external action great to, point. to shut or, them down. Or if great you point. use that to learn. You know, the, their techniques and what they're, you know, how, okay. how they're going what they're, about. What their technical capabilities yeah. are, how in-depth are they, how sophisticated. And, yeah, and, and that is where people would, would tell you that's exactly what it's great for, and it is. Right, mm -hmm. it is. right. It, the, the point would be what's the ROI right. to, to, to get there. Yeah, yeah so right. as, uh, as individuals or, or corporate America, it probably doesn't pay off a whole lot unless there's something really staring at you. And in it the could face. be situational. You're, you're absolutely mm -hmm. correct, though. If, if you could give me attribution that gave me the TTPs of what I'm up against, now that's a win, mm -hmm. right? right. Now, I, I want to know their exactly. tools. I want to know their techniques. I want to know what I'm up against. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have to know who I'm up against, though, right. to know what I'm up against. Mm -hmm. exactly. It just so happens that it, it many times will go reverse. If you know who, you know what. If you what. know who, you can figure out what we're. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, again, I think it's a, a question of ROI. Yeah. Um, I, I like it when the vendors do it for you, um, it, it, which is also difficult, but if you can get your vendor to do it for you. But the, the problem, of course, is a vendor, you go public and we say, you say, oh, well, we think this, and then everybody blasts you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't know that for sure. Yeah, Where did you yeah. get that info? Gee, and, when, when did that happen that recently? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it happens every single time. So, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a catch-22. Mm -hmm. situation um, and <laughs> funny enough that's that's why maybe the trust groups are still what works um, yeah it's true so on the lighter side of things as we collect all this threat intelligence data a lot of it's being, being put into Hadoop we right. better protect it so Jim tell us a <laughs> yeah there was a, an article in on uh, security weeks website on uh, oh, a week ago or so they did a, a survey of folks um, about Hadoop security. Mm -hmm. You know, big data is the big thing. You throw it all in Hadoop clusters. And what they, what they concluded from this survey of the, of the folks who were using it is they have all the same concerns that we had about, you know, relational databases a few years back that, mm -hmm. you know, the communication, you know, within the clusters is not encrypted. You know, the data at rest is not encrypted. And, you know, so they're, their headline on there was, you know, some scare thing about how, how poor it is. Well, you know, it's relatively new and it has all the same issues that, mm -hmm. that we've had to, you know, architect in after the fact in, in all of our previous mm -hmm. iterations. Um, yeah. You know, Hadoop is young and so did not have any of the, you know, the encryption kinds of things. Security was not, as far as I know, not a real big thought at, at the design stage. And, and, and I think true at the, in that case as it is with many other things, you know, like the internet wasn't designed as a business transaction network. Right. It was designed as a free-flowing research communication sharing network. And so 
uh, in its life cycle, its transition in terms of purpose. I think it's the same thing with Hadoop. And, and you know, whereas, you know, I think when I think about the beginnings of putting security on databases, I think Oracle. Yep. I mean, they were really the ones that kind of pioneered that activity. And uh, it was because databases, as they started out, were just a way to manage data, but then we started using them for managing transactions, business transactions. And so we needed controls and roles and audits and things around that. And uh, as we've progressed forward, here we are, we're starting to collect data just for the purpose of research, big data, right? And so big Hadoop data. was built around that notion that is, we didn't really build databases for analysis previously. We built them to track transactions. Now we're trying to build them for analysis yeah. and uh, just throw stuff in there and research. Well, it's like, well, now it's sensitive because you put yeah, all this stuff in there. The so now you have to <laughs> start thinking about putting the security on top I, of it. I would correct you on one thing, though. It wasn't Oracle just saying, oh, let's go make the database secure. It was researchers showing how insecure yeah. they were. No, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, I, one in particular, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. But the uh, it, in terms of actually implementing those controls, Controls, yeah. I think they sort of pioneered that activity. Yep. So, well, you're, when you're the one getting picked yeah. on, you're the one that has to yep. start first. This is true. Yeah, that's <laughs> this what happens. Is true. So, all right. So let's take a little bit of a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. And uh, the first item here is uh, we actually consistent with last week as well. Bytes. Uh, this is bytes on source port 161 UDP. Uh, this is a simple network management protocol. You know, one of those things you probably should not see on the internet if you're managing something over the internet there's probably something wrong with that network architecture. But apparently there are a number of devices that are exposing this, more than I had actually anticipated. But this is a evidence of uh, basically distributed reflective denial service attacks. There are a variety of targets here, so it's not just one target that's been sustained over time. And basically what it looks like is uh, this has just been wrapped in with a lot of the other reflective attack uh, capabilities that are being used for commercialized denial service attacks right now. Yeah. What, what, what I would say here, it doesn't surprise me, it's been around for years or not mm -hmm. about for years. Yes. Um, you know, they started with DNS uh, because, of course, there was plenty of open, you know, reflectors to enable that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so each one of these protocols has a different ability to amplify. So you've mm -hmm. got to be able to reflect. That's key. But the amplification is, is really what makes the size of the attack, you know, of course, yeah. go up. And uh, NTP, for instance, you know, uh, has a decent amplification. And, and so each one of these protocols will have that. Uh, that's been some of the discussion around IPv6 because mm -hmm. V6 allows for some pretty good amplification. The reason why SNMP has kind of been, you know, the last, let's say, or towards the end uh, in terms of, you know, uh, spoofable protocols is because the amplification is smaller. Yeah. Um, now, why would they use SNMP as opposed to NTP DNS? Simple, because it's different. Mm -hmm. Right, and so everybody starts to get better at understanding how to defend against these, mm -hmm. um, how to identify them, and you know, typical attacker, right, change the attack, and we'll have a, a, a high rate, higher rate of success at least initially. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, can't say it, it, it surprises me that much because it's different. But yeah, I don't think you're going to see the massive sizes we saw with NTP reflection. You know, yeah, I agree. 300, 400 yeah. gig is going to be hard to do, I think, with this protocol. Well, two fundamental things with NTP. It had the, uh, the uh, what was the monlist command, monlist. which was uh, just really, I mean, had significant yeah. amplifications, which I think has been locked down to a large extent. That's helped a lot. Yeah. And uh, there are an awful lot of devices that were exposing NTP that weren't intended to or needed to yeah. expose NTP at all. And I think the reason, one of the big, uh, uh, there are two actually barriers in SNMP. One is that 
usually devices that have SNMP are operated by people that at least have a little bit of a clue. At least I'd like to think so. And so it, it tends it to get disabled or blocked yeah. from the internet side more so. And then the second piece is the community string portion of this. If you want to get good amplification from it, you really need the community string to be able to get it to dump the MIP. Right. Yeah. And, uh, no, and you're so right. You don't have the have, issue with probably the zillion home routers. Right. It's not a zillion that, that home have routers. NTP. Right. You know, on you know most of those things are not going to have SNMP. I hope not. Hope not. <laughs> Although, you know, get, the, uh, the evidence here kind of suggests that uh, yeah, th there has been more. It, Some of them do. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Dan, I was going to ask you, what do you think is the next protocol to be on the list? One of the ones I think uh, that actually had been prior to this, I think, was um, what is it? SSDP. SSDP. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We've seen yeah. that. So I think actually this is. One, you know, right? If we had been talking about SSDP, I would have said, "Oh, SNMP will be next." Um, I, I don't have a great for you after SNMP, right? How many how many UDP protocols are there that, that are out there that are spoofable? Um, and no, none's popping the top of my mind unless you guys can think of one. But this, especially, they're going to allow you to have the amplification. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There, nothing's popping to mind. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, and, and all of them have been a bit of a, a, a surprise. I, I wouldn't say surprise, I mean, because it, it, as your organization yeah. is doing, as ours as well, that is, you can start to see the bit, the really early indications of it being used, and then you're, it's you're a totally of time. right. I mean, we had a, we had a full year with the the you, you know the banks of the U.S. getting attacked with large attacks and application mm -hmm. layer attacks, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had told me, oh, what will next year look like? I'd say, well, application attacks. <laughs> and uh, sure yeah. enough, the beginning of the year it was reflection amplification attacks. Right. So uh, I think that's why more and more people have gotten away from these silly predictions around uh, the holidays. <laughs> oh, except for us. We, we do. do. That. <laughs> <laughs> I like to call them trends. The trends, trends are yes, because that, trends. that is yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, even when the, when we first noticed folks scanning for NTP, I, I wasn't sure that it had the amplification factor until found out about Monlist. Right. Yeah. That was the that was the one that gave it that the huge the, yeah, That was the magic in a sense. Yeah. Well, now I'm thinking some weekend get a whole bunch of Red Bull and a whole bunch of RFCs. And just start reading and see if there's something in there that jumps out at me. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple folks out there that do scanning of, of the internet, um, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah, start keeping track of those projects. And, um, you know, it, it always surprises you. I, I remember H.D. Uh, Moore did a, a talk one time where he was talking about a project like that. And, and the amount of NT4 machines he found did, oh, not, yeah, yeah. did not surprise me. <laughs> right, the amount of NT351 machines he found did surprise yeah, me. Yeah, that's <laughs> Well, you don't need to patch those. No. <laughs> <laughs> those, I mean, right. They didn't have patches, and so you don't need to patch them, right? Yeah. <laughs> you need to take them out behind the... <laughs> no. Well, well that, that was an interesting move. Maybe you guys have already discussed this, you know, Microsoft talking about free upgrades, you know, mm -hmm. to, yeah. to 10, right? And, and so the issue becomes, wow, that's a, that's a great idea, mm -hmm. except for the fact can that OS actually run on the system that's running this older OS? Hmm. That's, well, right. <laughs> yeah. so that's go ahead. From a PR standpoint, brilliant. Yeah. Good job, Microsoft. Yeah. From a real-world application standpoint, can my old machine even run your new OS? Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, going to be I'll the challenge. I'll take my 286 we'll have to see out how many closet and see. Well, yeah, also, right. a great way to get people to buy brand new Windows machines. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, if that's if the goal, then yeah. great too. Yeah, but you're. Right, I mean, from us being security practitioners, we're like, wow, that's a big win. Mm -hmm. Until you realize, oh, well, a lot of those machines probably can't be upgraded, mm -hmm. and we're still stuck with them. Yeah. yeah, It'll be interesting to see how many takers there are there, because yeah. I, I, 
Um, it, you know, I, I was kind of speculating myself that, that is, if I take that upgrade, what do they learn about me? And, and not for, <laughs> not from my point of view. I'm right. I haven't pirated my software, but you know, this uh, for folks that aren't already aware of this, uh, Microsoft has offered uh, the, the speculation at, at the very least is that I think about two thirds of the machines in China use pirated software, and so right. this is they're offering a free upgrade so that uh, they can get the updates into place, and you know, presumably that's a good security measure to put into place, but the question is It sounds very altruistic and, and yeah. you know, hey, good job Microsoft, and um, you know, you know. We'll see it, how it works out. Yeah, exactly, here. that'll, that'll be the question, successful. right? It's, it's a good marketing move, um, it, and uh, you know, maybe it ends up being a good security move, but you're right, it, it's a question of how many people can actually do that, mm -hmm. um, and does it solve anything? If not, it was still a good marketing move. Mm -hmm. All right, next item here is the next, uh, actually the most probed ports. And uh, not a whole lot of movement here. Most of these we've been talking about. Uh, we'll take a little closer look at port 135. We talked about that last week and it's uh, getting back to its old self again. Uh, the biggest movement here is actually uh, port 8888, which uh, moved up 64 spots in terms of our ranking. So we'll uh, take a little bit of a look at that one as well. First of all, port 8888. Uh, this one actually is uh, associated with a couple of different applications, New Edge Gaming, Solaris Answerbook. Uh, we were discussing how old Solaris Answerbook is. I actually had seen a vulnerability back from two year, I think it was from 2000, where they had an authentication bypass. I don't think they're targeting Solaris Answerbook here. Uh, just, you know, just that's just I, me. I, I think that's a good gamble. <laughs> you, can, you can place your bets on yeah. that one. There are actually quite, a, there are some proxy applications that default to this port. So my suspicion is that they're uh, searching around for some, uh, some proxies, most likely for anonymizing activity. Uh, it, and by the way, most of the sources, there are several sources here, most of them uh, coming from China. Next item, as I mentioned, port 135 TCP. Uh, this is a DC endpoint resolution uh, associated with Microsoft. Actually, I think it shows, uh, I'm showing 90 days here. It's actually not 90 days of data that we're looking at. I think we're just looking at 30 days. But the significance being, uh, last week what we had reported is basically activity where the activity had dropped off significantly, and now it's kind of coming back to where it was before. Again, the same addresses that are doing this. It's around, uh, you know, on the order of about 200 addresses all associated with the same registration, uh, Chinese registered addresses, but it appears that they might be actually hosted somewhere outside of China. So uh, not necessarily hosted from China, but registered to China. And then uh, looking at uh, activity for port 23, I only bring this up not because it shows up in the top 10 less, but because it actually has dropped down a little bit. Still some significant probing activity on this port, is, uh, and we had talked about the uh, Internet of Insecure Things. This is the magical port that gets into an awful lot of those devices that expose port 23 to the Internet and uh, oftentimes have default passwords associated with them that the owners of the devices didn't even know about in, in many cases. In any case, the, uh, we're at the actually lowest level since Thanksgiving in terms of the probing activity on a uh, hourly basis. So uh, I, I'm conservatively or carefully putting my thumbs, I'll put my thumbs halfway up here. This is a generally a good sign, but I don't think it's because there's been a fundamental improvement in the security of things at this point. Mm -hmm. Looking at the most sources doing that probing, uh, we have at the top of the list here, port 445. We haven't seen that for a while, and uh, it's back. It had been port 23, and as I said, uh, we've seen a drop in the activity on port 23, so 445 came back. They're actually, and I was going to show a graph of it, but uh, it wasn't actually as compelling as I'd, uh, it, you know, 
had hoped here, but there actually has been a little bit of an upward bump in the number of sources that are probing on port 445, um, which is, uh, I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, most of this is uh, basically uh, conficker infections that still are uh, basically sitting out there and uh, doing their probing activities. The fact there's a little bit of an increase here, I don't know uh, exactly that could be, uh, maybe even a, just a routing change or something that's causing that, it's hard to say. As I said, port 23 followed by, we looked at that, and then uh, some of these others are actually associated with PDP gaming activity, and we also see 1900 down here. We talked about that simple service delivery uh, discovery protocol yeah. call used in uh, reflection attacks. And uh, this is a case where what it looks like is, um, uh, this is a case where the source, a spoof source, is uh, there are packets going out, and it looks like it's going to many places, so it uh, shows up there perhaps as scanning activity, and if there are a lot of uh, sources that are getting attacked, or targets of attack, it uh, basically shows up as, uh, in, this, uh, in this report. And so that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can get us through email at threattrack at list.att.com, and you can find ThreatTrack on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's att.com slash threattrack. It's also available on YouTube and iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter with a handle at ATT Security. And Dan, do you have a Twitter handle? I do, at Desmond Holden. All right, good. So uh, if you'd like to uh, get in touch with Dan, I'm sure he'd like to hear from you as well. I'd like to thank you, Dan. Yeah, had a good time. Oh, Appreciate it. Very much a pleasure to have you here today. Matt and Jim and Brian Rexrode. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.